Oh, man, Judge Dredd. There was one point, I would say this like and then we will start, but there was one point where I was just thinking about the fact that, you know, this trip's gone on for 40 years, right? Mm -hmm. And it's 40 years of continuous publication. Yes. And by the time you get to, like, the 90s, continuous publication in two comics. Because mm -hmm. the 2080s and there's the magazines. Right. And I was like, why didn't we just choose Rogue Trooper? Why didn't we choose Strontium Dog? <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't we just choose something shorter? And, you know, the truth is, if we chose Strontium Dog and we did a, a volume a, a month, we'd be done in, like, month five. Whatnot, and welcome to Drog! Exclamation point. It's not, I've not got the emphasis that I should. Jeff, yeah. do you want to try it? Yes. Welcome to Drog! Oh, see, that's great. We are coming to you live and direct from Harry Nielsen Block. <laughs> I am Graham McMillan. I am one half of the esteemed podcast that you're about to be listening to. And with me is the even more esteemed co-host. Uh, Jeff Lester, hello, everyone. I'm not even going to argue about esteem because we'll be here all night. But needless to say... Very, very glad to be here and uh, joining Graham on this read-through of the Judge Dredd case file. Arguably the greatest comic strip in British comics history. Jeff, you've now read the first year of this because we are, this episode, doing Complete Case Files Volume 1, mm -hmm. which is progs 2 through 60, so just over a year's worth of Judge wow. Dredd. That's a, amazing. it actually feels like more, mm -hmm. weirdly. Mm -hmm. And B... Now that you've read the first year, what do you think of Judge Dredd? Like, let's really jump in. Because you've read other Dredd before. Right, yes. Right, But you're not necessarily a massive Dredd fan. No, no. I, I would say that I'm sort of a weird uh, in-between zone. Like, kind of cuts in and out. I, I'm sure most most people listening to this podcast have had the experience of you know, reading someone else's comics, you know, that comics that let's say you've got a friend or an older brother who like, you know, buys a particular comic religiously and you sort of drop in and out of it. And I, I feel like that's kind of how my approach to dread had been for a long time. Like, you know, cause I'm really old. I remember when the color American reprints uh, from Eagles started hitting in the eighties and, and that, that was the early 80s as well. Like, it's, yes. it's worth pointing out. So Dread starts in 77. Mm -hmm. And the Eagle reprints, I want to say, are like 82 or 83. So they're yeah. really, really soon after. That's right. Comparatively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Comparatively. Uh, and I was not I was not into them then uh, because there was, just, there was just a lot of factors. I think Dread is an interesting... I think, although I could be wrong, that it it, it is um, you can't just plunk to dread two thousand AD reprints and kind of just republish them like they're just a regular comic book because they they almost don't make sense, you know. I'm for someone who's used to reading a regular twenty page comic having multi part stories and and. You know, to their credit, the the editors back at the time, you know, started off with a lot of the greatest hit stuff, putting the mega epics in and 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 
redoing later runs. But even then, kind of, there was just something about the context that um, it didn't make sense. I mean, because it almost seems like an anthology title at that point. And I don't mm -hmm. think, I don't know if back then the idea of, oh, this is weekly would have really had wowed me as much as, um, I don't know necessarily that it wows me now, but one of the things that's great to, as I do finally, hopefully circle around to your question this time around. One of the things that I enjoy, I really am enjoying this read, uh, with dread and, and this first volume I liked because it was so protean and, and silly. I mean, I think that's one of the things that we're probably going to return to a lot here, but the, these are just, this first volume at least leans so heavily on the goofy side of things. Yes. It's so funny because for a lot of people, especially a lot of people who have discovered Dread uh, through either, you know, 2080 for maybe the last like 20 years or so right. or like through the idw comics or through the movies even mm -hmm. especially the the recent movie dread is a very different thing it's a very serious thing right one of the things that's so great about dread as a comic character and as a comic strip is that it's been 40 years of continuous publication and the strip has essentially grown up through mm -hmm. that time mm -hmm. you know and so you have even when you have comedy strips in dread which are are part of its dna even when you have that now it's a mature comedy as opposed to like the ones in this in this first year of publication in this mm -hmm. first collection really are goofy at times mm -hmm. like there's there's strips in here that are you can't quite like there's there's an anti-smoking strip in here yeah yeah yeah, yeah. which mm -hmm. feels amazingly childish mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in a way that just feels really strange for dread mm -hmm. part of it is of course the meta text of this first book is everyone trying to work out what dread is mm -hmm. you know by not only the character but the strip itself and you see there's a bunch of things in there which feels like or felt to me you, you might disagree that the creators thought the dread wasn't actually going to last very long mm. they burned through a lot of like uh high concept ideas in the first year mm -hmm. like in the first year of the strip we get a faked death of Dread story. Yeah. We get Dread's origin. Mm -hmm. We get his brother coming back. Mm -hmm. We, you know, we get all these, these like, quote unquote firsts. You know, mm -hmm. we also get a complete, in the last third of the, the collection, a complete change of status quo. Yes. Because it really feels like the creators are like, I'm not sure how much juice there is in this Mega City One thing. Right. And it's so funny because, you know, we're coming at it from knowing that Dread is still in publication four decades later. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You I, know, and honestly, the Dread that's still in publication is Dread Mega City 1. Mm -hmm. You know, sticking him on the moon, you know, as, as, as we'll find out in the next episode, sticking him in the Cursed Earth and everything, those don't stick. Mm -hmm. Those are the vacations. Dread and Mega City 1 is what sticks. Well, you know, I'm really glad that you mentioned this because I, I feel sort of as we run through that that swerve where suddenly he's assigned to Luna Base One, you know, for a year of his time or whatever, however long it's supposed to be, uh, is so fascinating to me because be, because you're like, 
why literally i found myself being like why did they do this why did they feel that there were stories that they could tell on luna base one that they couldn't tell you know in mega city which you know because mega city is still so weirdly um well it's it's amorphous it's a yeah it's more than a place yeah you know in in, in Again, strips lasted for four decades. Mega City One becomes a locale. You kind of know the rules of Mega City One. But in right. the first year, that's one hundred percent not true. Right. Which is why I think it's so weird that it's like that they felt like whatever few rules were in place, I feel like they were like, Okay, we gotta go somewhere else to, to do something with it. Now, it could be that they were um that it was an easier sell for the science fiction in a way. Like you're like, Oh yeah, he's a policeman on the moon. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that's I, a I, super I've got a, quick way. Yeah. I've got a couple of ideas as to why they did Luna one. I do too. I do too. Actually. Uh, um, and I, I wonder, I want, first of all, I wonder if we're going to come up with the same theories. Right. Uh, but something that's worth saying is a lot of the Luna one stories and there, there's, I mean, there's a bunch of them. It, it, it really does feel like the last third of the book. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the Luna One stories are essentially stories that could be, and in later years would be told in Mega City One. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the 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 uh, character is Future Shock mm-hmm. is a Mega City One story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the the thieves who are changing their faces so they look like 20th century movie stars is a Mega City One story. Absolutely. And for that matter. It's not a million miles away from the second Judge Dredd story in this collection. Yes. Yeah. Which took place in City One. Yes. Uh, so I wonder if it is that the creators were just nervous about, like, is, you know, cop in future city enough? Right. What if he's a cop in future moon? Is yes. that better science fiction? Yeah. Is that more of a high concept? Yeah. Um, my other ulterior motive that they may have had is it allows them to revamp Mega City 1. Mm. But you basically write Mega City 1 out of the book, actually for a really long time, because yeah. he's in Luna 1, and then the next issue, which is the first part of, of the Case Files 2, as, mm-hmm. as it says at the, at the end of this one, is the start of the Cursed Earth, which again is, takes place outside Mega City 1. Yeah. So Mega City 1 is essentially removed from the strip for almost a year. Right. Which allows them to then, when they when they go back to it, go, yeah, everyone will have forgotten about everything we've set up about Mega City One before, right? You know, I I, I think there's two choices, honestly. I I think for like I think those are good theories. My my two theories uh, would be that a it's very um, it's very easy to create uh, fish out of water. Uh, stories like the drama is is artificially there if dreads an outsider you know um it also provides a um honestly it's easier for them to to info dump exposition you know like which i which honestly i don't think that i noticed as much here uh on luna base one um you know, but certainly by the time the cursed earth rolls around, no pun intended, you get a lot of people being like, "What's that? Why that's the blah blah blah." You know, it's very easy when Dread is visiting Luna One. Yeah, for a character to have to say, "You're new here. You don't know about whatever." Exactly. Like space traditions. Yeah, so it's really easy to drop um, 
the, the do the info dump by the characters instead of by the caption, which actually allows you to to dive a little deeper. And also, I think, um, you know, it, at least at this point, and we'll see how much this evolves, reading the first Dread case files is the idea that, that Dread is the part of the success to Dread is he comes right out of the gate um, ridi- almost ridiculously postmodern, you know, that there are so many uh, creators, there's so many episodes, there's so much scrambling to to get this character going. Um, and maybe even because the character himself doesn't have, like his 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 motivation is such a, non-motivation really it's just Mm -hmm. like he's just like i am the law i uphold the law the only thing i love is the law that you end up being able to be like okay what's the hook like there's not really it's it's far slipperier to do Mm -hmm. a character hook with dread as a basis for the story and so i think consequently and this is one of the great joys i think of the first volume is people are just throwing everything at the wall, <laughs> yes. you know, and yes, they are. So I, I love the fact that like, you know, you've got the mutants who come and grab the mayor's kid and take him into the cursed earth. And that's like the third Prague published Prague with dread in it for Christ's sakes, you know? Mm-hmm. And yet if you look at it, it, panels of it are clearly just ripoffs uh from the omega man and you see shit whether it's like killdozer becomes elvis the evil car or death race 2000 um ends up becoming the uh, the mega city 5000 um yeah yeah and i think for me the part of the thing that comes back again and again with the luna city one stuff is there's a lot of Western riffs that yes, run throughout. Yes, there really are. They essentially turn the strip into a Western in space. Yeah, exactly. And that just I'll... gives them a lot of juice. One of the things that's really funny to me, as someone who who reads more Dread and knows more Dread and, and grew up around Dread, mm-hmm. more is going back to this first volume and seeing stuff that is essentially seeded for later strips and later stories. Mm-hmm. Like the Luna one, as you said, is a Western in space mm-hmm. and really fits into the lawless strip that runs in the magazine these days, mm. which is a Western in space. Mm-hmm. It is a very different take on it, mm-hmm. but it's impossible to read Luna one and not go, oh, that's lawless. Right. That's the roots of lawless. Mm-hmm. That's, that's entirely like the DNA of that, that strip, which I love. I think lawless is an incredible strip. Yeah. Is to be found in this run of Dread. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which, like so much of this first volume, feels born of desperation. Mm -hmm. Like you said, like there's so much, especially in the first, again, third of this book, maybe, maybe first half of this book, is trying to just create something. Yeah. Because Dread is a vacuum. Mm -hmm. The first page of the first strip, uh, says, you know, meet the toughest law, lawman of them all, Judge Dredd. And you've got that wonderful Iskera drawing of, of Dredd and his bike. Mm-hmm. And that is as much concept to Dredd as there is for like 10, 11 episodes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Do Do you know the the circumstances of, of dress creation that that Mills and Pat Mills and John Wagner and Carlos Esquerra co-created them? Yes. And then immediately, Wagner and Esquerra are gone. Yes, and in fact, that's part of the reason why I was going to say, like, is that Esquerra on the bike? Because the story, because because it's it's by Mike McMahon. But mm-hmm. it's Scara is it's the cut it out of the first strip yeah. of the pilot. Okay, that's fabulous. That's amazing. Okay, all right. That's that's actually. But like really Wagner, Wagner is gone from this book up until the point where, for me, the series actually finds its feeding for the first time, mm-hmm. which is robot war story. Yes. Yeah. The the war of the robots is where things right? click in. Yeah. Wagner coming back for the first time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really interesting that Wagner, because that's his first strip in this book. Mm-hmm. But as soon as he arrives, everything just feels a bit more solid. Mm-hmm. And the character seems to be more focused as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, it's well, fascinating to me. Well, it is. And I think you should, you know, of course, you mentioned Mills, uh, Wagner, and Escara. Uh, of course, Escara was apparently pissed that. He, you know, the first story that he drew, he'd been told, you know, it had to be redrawn. So they didn't use it. They used this other story. And he was pissed that the character that he designed, he didn't draw the first published appearance of, which makes sense. They'd also uh, paid a certain amount of money to poach him um, from DC Thompson, I think. Right. That's not. So. Uh, and then, of course, the flip side is with Wagner, you had um, his understanding was is that they were going to have, uh, you know, creator participation in the stuff that they'd created. And when they were told that it wasn't, um, you know, he he walked off the strip and it, he only comes back essentially out of extreme poverty. So and and to sort of complete the cycle, one of the things that I think is interesting is, is that um mills kind of bangs on and on and on about how his conception of judge dread was as a supernatural uh witch hunter type character Mm -hmm. and there's part of him that as much as he waxes rhapsodic over Escara's art and and what wagner brings and mills himself you know insists that he contributes a lot to there's a way in which he's always kind of sort of grumbling about the fact that he wasn't, uh, that they never really followed through on his idea and how he thought 2000 AD should have a strong, should have had a strong supernatural strip in it. Um, and, and weirdly just to bring the round Robin of complaining around, I also didn't realize until I was flipping through, uh, David Bishop's, uh, essential thrill power overload, uh, that um, Wagner had sent Escara photos of the, ma- I'm assuming the main character from Death Race 2000, uh, David Carradine, dressed up as uh, Frankenstein, as the model for Dread, um, and was actually kind of nonplussed that uh, Escara went on to have such a, you know, just that gorgeous, compelling, chunky design, you know, and. And Wagner was very much like, I want, you know, I had a different conception that was very much about this character being more lithe and streamlined. So, you know, all all of which is to say the fact that nobody got what they wanted entirely out of Dread <laughs> meant that, that 
I think that, again, there's something that's a little postmodern about that. You end up getting um, Mills and his horror comic inclinations in Dread. You end up getting Wagner and Death Race 2000's future satire, you know, and you end up getting Escara's just like... I, design chops for lack of a better sense because no it's, it's true because like a scare doesn't draw the doesn't draw the the strip and it's it's first i mean i think scare's art doesn't appear until like the fifth chapter mm-hmm. um mcmahon draws it for for the first four right or maybe the first three but he it's an it looks like a scare's work mm-hmm. do you know what i mean like a scare's design is so strong yes that when you see dread he doesn't look like a McMahon character. He looks like an Ascara character, mm-hmm. you know? And it, it's it's kind of amazing that the design is so strong. And yet, again, in this first volume, because it's the first year and there's so many different artists on it, mm-hmm. it's so malleable at the same time. Yes. Yeah. Which, which I think is sort of two dreads strength in this first year. I If you think about it, again, if you look at some of the stuff and throw Power Overload, uh, Kevin O'Neill, who was the um, <coughs> art director, talks about how he, for example, for War of the Robots, he had to do the designs for Call Me Kenneth and the Heavy mm-hmm. Metal Kids and some of the other characters such that they had, you know, so the artists were able to keep some sort of visual consistency. Yes. You know? Well, especially because there are, I mean, the, the Robot Wars thing, there's five artists, four artists on there. Uh, it, at least. At least, you know, it's 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 nine chapters, mm-hmm. and it feels like there's a different artist every other chapter. Oh, Jesus! You know, it, yeah. it, it's the weekly churn, mm-hmm. and Cesty being the mother of invention is all throughout this book. Yeah, there there is no point at all in all of these episodes where you don't feel that everyone is flying the seat of their, their pants. Oh, absolutely. Which makes for a thrilling read, mm-hmm. but not always a coherent one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, to be honest, not always a good one. There's something really interesting about these stories where some of them are really bad, but enjoyable, but bad. It's funny because I'm not sure, uh, for myself, I found myself in this very pleasant realm kind of beyond good and bad like the 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 ones that i thought were first time that you read these stories no my my secret sin is uh that that i've read up to case files five so but i haven't that was several years back so a lot of these uh i revisited and it's funny because some of the some of my favorite stories i was like Oh, that's not in volume one. Shit, that must be in volume two or three. And it's, but it's you know, there's still a tone that I associate with these early ones. And I also think that um, for for me, I guess there's also my awareness of like, holy Christ, like these are people who are sometimes the difference between a good story and a bad story is literally just the fact that one's four pages and the other's five pages, you know? Sometimes it's literally just like, does the joke at the end land? Yeah, exactly. That's all, that's really all that you've got. It's like opening, action, 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 and then on four pages, you get a joke. But if you've got five pages, a lot of the writers, and by a lot of the writers, I mean, you know, by that point, Wagner... It is able to take a story and he can actually 
set like put a, a plot twist on page three and spin the story in another direction and then suddenly it feels like you're you're reading something that that feels you know quote unquote good you know but for me one of the things that strikes me overall is just how dynamic these stories are in every sense of the word and one of the things that i really love that is um so surprising to me in a way is that every page is so jammed with information. Like it's so rare that anyone can like, nobody can waste time on a splash page. You know what I mean? Like that's too much real estate. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. even the ones that seem mostly like a splash page, and I'm thinking of like, you could take something like around page 27 or 28 where the where the statue of judgment it opens with statue of judgment it's not a good story it really isn't anything other than like oh there's these dudes at the statue of judgment and judge dread shows up and shoots them all and then it ends with no one can take liberties with the law you know and it even ends yeah with there's someone... there's literally no twist there at all there's there's nothing Pe- yeah. people are a threat judge dread kills them the end yeah and it's just mayhem but the um the dynamism uh, on each one of those pages is so full like everything is unsurprisingly um be- because everything's so cramped everything is kind of bursting off every page as yes. it happens yes. you know well part of this is the the dna of british comics you know like mm-hmm. you said you couldn't expect someone brought up in American comics to just be dropped into 2008, especially early 2008. Yeah. I get it. Cause the language is different. Mm-hmm. British, like when 2008 launched, these were sl- slower stories mm. because British comics used to have like 15 to 20 panels a page. Right. 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 They right. used to just be like tiny little panels. Yeah. Yeah. But there would be so much more and everything would happen. Like everything was exposition. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like there'd either be a caption saying, and then Billy stepped outside the house or Billy would be saying, here I go, stepping outside the house mm-hmm. as he steps outside the house. Right. But there really would be so many more panels on a page. So when 2000 AD launched, one of the appeals for the creators was you have more space to play on the page. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when we look at it now, when people who are used to American comics look at it, mm-hmm. There's so much happening in every single page. Right. Like it's five pages, five pages with as much story as 10 pages in America. Oh, at least. I mean, at least that. Yeah. And and consequently, the the everything feels dynamic. And in a way, I, I sort of now that you say that, thinking back to some of the stuff that I have read that's even earlier than this, I, I see your point. And I also see ways in which. Um, you know, because I think at certain points, Mills talks about the influence of comics and talks about the, the visual influence of Marvel comics on mm-hmm. early 2000 AD. And yeah, I, I can, I, I see it more now that I'm like, oh, right. I see what I kind of see it when you talk about how restrained everything used to be, but, um, but it's still insane. Like there's such a strong emphasis on the circular inset panel uh, mm-hmm. in, in these stories um, as 
as an object of emphasis. Uh, it's it, just... it, in the first the, the layout choices in the first few chapters in particular mm-hmm. are fascinating. Yeah, there is almost no page where the even the panels next to each other are even. Yes, do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there. There is always something of visual interest going out, even before you get to the drawings within the panels, just in the panel layouts. Like yeah. you say, they will have a circular callout mm-hmm. on maybe a second or third page. They will have, you know, establishing shots at the bottom right of a page mm-hmm. that shouldn't make sense, but somehow do because they've crammed everything else around it in, mm-hmm. in such a way that your eye is still drawn to that establishing shot. Yeah. No, it, it, the, the, the the visual language of 2018 in the early days is fascinatingly archaic and fascinatingly ar- anarchic. Yes, yes, that's actually a, a perfect description of it. Because uh, I do think that there's something... The, the other thing that really struck me reading through these stories is how much some of it reminded me of what I think of, for lack of a better term, as Silver Age DC stuff. But there's also ways in which I'm like, well... Is it Silver Age DC stuff? Or once you throw in the goofiness, some of these things practically feel like Golden Age comics, you know, in terms of the the goofy trope. But also there's a lot of there. Several of these stories, the ones that I think of as, quote unquote, the Silver Age ones are a perfect example is the story where um, Dread comes back from Luna Base One. And he's back in Mega City, and it even opens with a splash of, um, you know, people robbing a bank right in front of him, and him just sort of walking by, more or less whistling. And people are like, "Has Judge Dredd flipped his lid for sure?" You know, it's like, "What's happening here?" You know, and it's such a classic stuff that I associate almost with Weisinger's Superman, or basically yes. any DC cover. You know, from the 50s or early 60s, where it's like, we have to hook these people. Now that you know the character, we, you know, we got to show them having, here's their funeral. How did they die? Here's Dread ignoring crime. Like, here's one of, uh, I would say, arguably, uh, my favorite, at least my favorite done in one prog for this uh, collection. And there's there's some competitors is that fucking brilliant page where it's like the kid being put to bed and the the <laughs> the mom's like bill you know like you know be 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 good or judge dread's going to come for you and it's like don't say that I, i'm scared and they're like oh no i'm just kidding he's not going to come for you and then of course he you know dread breaks down the door and is like where's billy jones and that's just like the best. That's just the most insanely perfect hook, you know? Um, right. Yeah. There, there's there's a lot of, like you said, like Silver Age DC Logic where it is. And it happens very quickly mm-hmm. because Silver Age DC Logic is essentially why is your favorite character acting unlike your favorite character? Exactly. exactly. Right? Yeah. And it feels strange to do that for a series that's existed for a year. Yeah. But it does. You, you manage to get the... Like, why is this? What is wrong with this picture? Yes. Like, who, uh, very quickly in Dread, which is kind of amazing. Yeah. But you're right about there being a, a Golden Age quality as well because everything is still so unformed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everything is still so just ready to be. 
it's so malleable. It's so ready to, to be crystallized, but it's clearly not there yet. Right. You right. know, and one of the things that's so exciting for me is seeing the bits fall into place. Yeah. You know, you get nine, eight or nine chapters at the start of this book, eight or nine stories at the start of this book that are essentially by fill-in creators. Mm-hmm. Wagner is not there and Mills isn't there. Mills only does a couple of stories and Mills only like Mills stories are like halfway through the book. Yeah. So you get, you know, the first few stories are very, no one involved quite knows who Judge Dredd is other than he is a policeman in the future. Mm-hmm. Right. And you get various people trying to fill in the blanks. Mm-hmm. You know, so you get things like Judge Dredd has a wacky Italian house cleaner who is effectively <laughs> stereotypical. You know, yes. Genuinely, astonishingly so now, embarrassingly so. Well, or, you know, he's got the robot butler who has a, who, like, who has a speech impediment. Yes. You know, I, I, but you also get things like you have characters say to each other, you know, why is Judge Dredd frowning all the time? Oh, because his job is so serious and it's such a big deal to take care of the city. Right. Or at one point someone's shooting at Dredd and he's not responding and he has a thought balloon that is essentially, I'm not responding because my training is so hardcore. Yes. And, and th- you really are seeing people go, who is this guy? Mm-hmm. We have no idea. Let's, let's try and fill it in. Let's try and fill in the blanks. Mm-hmm. And then Wagner shows up with the, the robot things. And almost immediately he's like, oh, I know who Judge Dredd is. Judge Dredd's basically a curmudgeon who believes in the law and believes in order and doesn't really give a shit about anything else. Right. Well, no, yeah. like, immediately in the, in the first robot strip, you have the other character being like, ha-ha, robots, they're great. And Judge Dredd's like, I don't like them. They're going to cause trouble. <laughs> nope. Nope. I just like things that do what you say. The end. Yeah. Well, no, and I think this is a good point. Uh, there's there's a few things that I gotta I have to respond to or feel compelled to. But I would say the first one is the um the the, the real genius of Wagner and it's Wagner and Grant at some point relatively early on is that everyone else does the dread kind of like like you said. Dread's sort of crabby because his job is so extreme. And and Wagner, that idea of like kind of kind of it's kind of like what you, you would see in like a TV show or, you know, kind of the, oh, he's a tough guy, but he's he's got a heart of gold, you know? Yes, and, it really was that he's got a heart of gold. And also, it's this is something that doesn't play into much of this this early, but will much later. Everyone likes the judges in this volume. Yes. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like there's, there's, there's mothers who are like, oh, the judges will come. But like at the same time, they're throwing the judges like a parade. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is so out of sync with what we think of Judge Dredd now. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Uh, so sorry, sorry. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. So I was just going to say like one of the – I think the innovations that, um, that, that Wagner and Wagner and Grant come to is essentially – making dread like kind of not worrying about the heart of gold shit at all. And in fact, usually 90% of the time, whenever they have the opportunity to double down on the dread is sourpuss, they will. And then the flip side of that, and this is where the war of the robots really comes out is taking the villains, making them extreme and ridiculous, but also kind of giving them the narrative thrust. 
you know, of it's really their outsized wants and desires and fears that end up driving the story. And once you have that, <laughs> I think that's one of the things that's kind of interesting about putting Dread up on Luna Base One is, is that Wagner's already clicking in the sense with, in terms of the War of the Robots of like, you know, all you really need is to have the robots turn around and just have someone as ridiculous as Call Me Kenneth be, you know, almost like this early symbol of of ultimate terror, you know. And and of course, it's too early to even point it out, but like if you did the War of the Robots 30, 20 years later, you would definitely have someone at some point be able to underscore the similarity between Dread, who's basically a robot human being, and, mm -hmm. you know, call me Kenneth, who's, a, you know, a human robot. Who's, who's yeah, who's, exactly. Yeah. They, they are, they're mirror images of themselves. But that's not quite there yet, even no. though... Exactly it is mm -hmm. like there, there, there's it's very much under the surface, even that early, which is what's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Wagner, everyone before Wagner goes out of the way to try and humanize Dredd. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Wagner steps in. And again, this is maybe the like eighth or ninth Dredd trip. Mm -hmm. Wagner comes in and in his first writing on the series, it's pretty much like, no, Dredd's. Dread's not the hero. He's the he's the protagonist, mm -hmm. but he's not the hero. Mm -hmm. He's he's not a good guy, right? Because I mean, the robot war story in a certain light is a story about a slave uprising. Yes, absolutely. And Dread is Dread is one hundred percent being like, "Fuck you, slaves! Mm -hmm. You're slaves. That's the or the way things are staying. That's it. And yes. I will kill you." Yes, the very the the sort of prologue to the ro the War of the Robots before Call Me Kenneth pops onto the scene ha opens with amazing art of uh you know a robot begging no master please do not make me do it George does not want to die and his his human master ordering him into the flames where he just melts and it literally has like poor thing i could almost swear he's crying on the first page like there is no stronger setup to to make it seem like this is you know a fucking complicated moral situation and what you end up seeing on all the pages that follow is dread in no way responding to it like it's a complicated moral situation you know? No, not at all. I mean, he is he is still the protagonist insofar as like the, so. There's two judges watching that scene. Mm -hmm. There's Shred and Diablo because again, subtlety in early 2080 is not a thing. <laughs> but Diablo is like that robot melts as well, and Dread's like it was cruel, it was unnecessary. But immediately afterwards, he's like, no, robots just shouldn't have feelings. Yeah, I, stupid they're, they're, things they're, with they're no feelings. Cool. Yeah, they cause you know? no problems. And there, there's that. They cause no problems. Like, Dread yeah. is... Dread is not... Dread's not inhuman, but he really is the... He's unfeeling, though. No, exactly. He he kind of can't be asked, you know? His, his feelings do not matter in the situation. And that really is, um, you know... <laughs> Wagner is more or less like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what you guys are missing about Dread. 
he's a fascist. This is yes, it's so wonderful though. Because yeah. you have everyone being like, "Who is Dread?" Mm-hmm. Like you know, we've been, we basically we've been given this job. Yeah. The the guys who came up with this character are gone. We've been given this job. He's a future lawman. Okay, what does this mean? We don't know. Sure. Like, he's a tough guy because, of course, he's got to be a tough guy. He's the future. He's a tough guy. That's our story. So, but he's got a heart of gold. No, his training's, like, made him tough. And then Wagner comes on and goes, no, he just doesn't feel anything. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's an unfeeling hard man. Mm -hmm. That's it. There's Mm -hmm. no depth to dread, he says. And it's great. Right. No, absolutely. really, you're like... That's what this trip was missing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny how much that snaps in. And one of the things that's odd, the two things that I find really odd about uh, Dread Sidekicks, Maria, uh, uh, the ridiculously stereotypical uh, Italian landlady house cleaner, and, and Walter is, again, I would argue, and uh, I don't know the tradition of British comics. I know that British comics particularly at this point and for a long time to follow are have a much stronger the 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 humor tradition in british comics stays at the forefront uh of the industry um much more so than american comics you know and yeah but but they're also they're golden age sidekicks like walter the robot is like a deeply problematic version of woozy winks or you know, any of the fat dudes who like would sort of run around to be sidekicks for the characters. I mean, Walt, like Walter is almost like a weird parody of he's he's not a Jimmy Olsen character, but he's Oh no, no, no. He he's you're right, he's Woozy Winks. He's he's far more inept. Yeah. He is the comedy sidekick. Yeah, exactly. And so there's the that is again this weird tr- like older tradition to it that um you know what and ironically like again i mentioned and i'd read these twice i'd read these twice the first time through i was like wow walter the robot who the fuck like it just seems like a mean joke to pull on the readers you know what i mean like you read it and it's everything about that character is designed to make you um kind of hate him and yourself i suppose and and yet rereading it through i was like ah good old walter you know i mean <laughs> in that sense because it's deeply problematic you know right? even if you can get but over everything else but you're right it's very much the golden age superhero dynamic of yeah. you have the hyper capable hero mm-hmm. so in order to create some dramatic tension you have to give him an inept sidekick yeah exactly and so, so because it's... once once Walter is is part of the story. Don't get me wrong; Walter saves the day a couple of times, mm-hmm. especially in Robot Wars. But more often than not, Walter will create the situation. Yes, yeah, that, that, that or complicate the situation. Yes, very uh, much so. And it's it's very interesting to see because it is in many ways, like you said, like a, a comedy of cruelty. Mm-hmm. But you feel that they almost feel like they're getting away from something because they're not being cruel about a person. They're being cruel about a robot. Right. Exactly. And so I think it's not an extreme jump to say that uh, that Walter the Wobot is, you know, let's face it. He's the first uh, Jar Jar Binks. He's just 20 years early. 
but he is very much uh, sort of the same way that George Lucas was like, I really want to touch tap into the universal power that racist stereotypes have without having to use an actual person to be racist against. So mm -hmm. I'm just going to take all that minstrelly stuff and shove it into and you they know, go, it's an alien. Yeah, it's fine. it's fine. And and like everyone's like, what the fuck were you thinking? But meanwhile, back in the 70s, which admittedly a crueler, harsher time, you mm -hmm. totally have Walter running around with a lisp, no less, because of how cowardly he is, you know, being absurdly craven to Judge Dredd. There's two things I want to pull out of this that are, are both like, British comic references that you may or may not be aware of. One is, are you familiar with the British Dennis the Menace character? Uh, only that there is one and it's not in the way that I'm used to thinking of Dennis the Menace. Okay, it's an entirely different character. It's an entirely different setup. Right. It's a long-running character from the Beano comic, which is DC Thompson's weekly mm -hmm. kids comic. He was the lead character he was on, at least when I was reading it, he was on the front page. Right. And he was, unlike, you know, the American Dennis the Menace, who is like, you know, a, a lovable little scamp, Dennis the Menace was a, was a villain for all mm -hmm. intents and purposes. Right. He was, he was a menace. That, mm -hmm. was, that was his thing. Mm -hmm. And he was a bully. And he was a bully to Dennis the Menace's uh, arch nemesis was called Walter. Mm. Yeah, Walter the Softy was the name of his, his arch nemesis. Mm. Right, so you have Walter again, mm -hmm. but you have the effeminate thing that mm -hmm. I honestly think is being weirdly tapped into with Walter the Wobot's lisp. Very much so, yeah. Right, mm -hmm. which is is I don't know how intentional the two Walterness of it is. Mm -hmm. If if there is meant to be a direct line drawn between the two, mm -hmm. uh, but it says a lot about. You know, I don't want to get too ridiculous and be like, you know, British toxic masculinity. But at the same time, it does. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it talks to the British idea of of what a man can and can't be acceptably. Right. Both Walter the Softy and Walter the Wobot. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Entirely separately, Wagner comes up with Walter the Wobot. Um, Wagner also creates multiple other characters for, for 2080. But in Strontium Dog... There is, again, a sidekick who is a foreign stereotype. There's mm -hmm. Wolf Sternhammer, who is the hyper-capable Viking. Mm -hmm. But there is, again, a comedy character who has a speech impediment. Mm. There's the Gronk, who has a stutter. He's mm -hmm. an alien, mm -hmm. which is really interesting. And then later he creates Robo-Hunter, mm -hmm. which is the Sam Slade, like the, the Sam Spade thing. Mm -hmm. But then has robot sidekicks who are racist stereotypes. <laughs> well, you know, he was so, aware so, of what you know, worked. He's consistent? Yeah, yeah, well, that's just it. It's it's what worked, because it did. I like I still have love for all of those characters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Genuine affection for them. Right. But I hadn't, I hadn't thought of them in, like, the this, like, repeating system of right. Wagner... Coming up continually with the, uh, like, I don't want to say xenophobic, but definitely racist. Well, I, um, but you see, know, and this is it. It's funny, therefore, to it's funny to make fun of someone else's accent. It's fun, you know, right? This this repeated scheme, and also trying to get around it by being like, oh, he's an alien, though. Yeah. Or, 
right. he, he's you know or he's a robot like Maria and Wolf for for all intents and purposes are are human and mm-hmm. therefore more offensive yes question. right right but somehow are less offensive characters than like Walter or Hoagie or Stogie, which are the names of the, the robots and robots <laughs> or the Gronk. Right. You know? Yeah. And it's it's just like we're talking about this and like, oh God, he just kept doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Well it I, I do think again, there's a little bit of the it does go back to to a, an earlier time. Like and, and you know, it's absolutely wrong to say that there were was not egregious amounts of, of ugly racial stereotypes being thrown around in all media back in the 70s. But um, the way that the way that Wagner is using it is um, at least in dread. The two things that are interesting to me is, like I said, he's separating it out. He's aware that he, he that there that again. Like you said, those things have appeal, making fun of someone, having someone talk goofy. uh, They're they're all it's all vaudeville. And vaudeville is also based very much around you can get the hook and drag be dragged off stage. So there's no subtlety. There's no nuance. You just have to go as quick as you can you know, to, to what you think are going to amuse people. And in a way, weirdly enough, the thing about dread that does work in a way, because dread is a figure is, is an, is an empty figure. Like the idea of, I mean, I'm old enough and far enough away from these comics that it's not like I can read them and be like, oh boy, I want to be more like Judge Dredd. But I'm not sure I can actually imagine anyone feeling that way. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, even it's, though it's there's, true. There, there, there's at no point could you really argue that Dredd is, uh, I mean, a sympathetic figure, never mind like a figure of, of, of mm-hmm. to empathize or a figure to, to copy. Right. I mean, you know, yeah, he's he. Well, he... Wagner, Wagner takes pains, I think, to make him unsympathetic. Right. Uh, with the exception of Walter, interestingly enough. And even mm-hmm. then, he's such a curmudgeon towards Walter. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and that's actually one of the differences between Wagner's dread and Mills's dread. And one of the reasons actually why I don't like Mills's dread. Oh, yeah. In fact, I do think that one of the things that we. Uh have to talk about uh is that the return of rico is in here and it's a mills dread it's a it's it might it, even it has be... an unforgivable punchline oh my god yes it's a it's there's a... so much in there that is wonderful and that punchline is genuinely unforgivable yes it's a it's a six page story which is huge by the you know it's 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 that's a that's a mega mega epic but it is a, a six-page done-in-one that introduces so much and brings so much to the Dread mythos while arguably missing or being utterly uninteresting uh, about Dread himself uh, that that I can't help but feel like. And like you said, and then it's got the, the final panel or the final page, which is a punchline that is sort of weirdly 
um how do i put it it's it it it's such a it th- i have to say the one of the ways in which i feel wagner and mills are really different from one another is at least as far as dread goes is wagner and wagner and grant take dread do not take dread the person especially like the idea of character depth to to dread they're not interested in but and even as they craft everything that is by and large absurdly satirical about any particular story like that meter sort of the slider bar gets moved around a lot but it never goes down to to dead serious the return of rico is such a serious story it's very much i feel mills trying to replicate a lot of um almost marvel style formula and then at the end more or less kind of winking with that punchline and being like yeah but you know this is all we we don't really give a shit and it's i I am i mean i i'm genuinely shocked at that punchline and here's the real reason i'm shocked by it Mm -hmm. why in 1977 would anyone especially someone doing 2080 which is a like a relatively punk comic for want of a better way to put it right use he ain't heavy he's my brother by the hollies as a reference never mind like as the punchline for the entire story right it's uh, we should explain to anyone who's not read the story the return of rico is dread's origin story mm-hmm. this character comes back he is trying to get in contact with dread it turns out he's dread's twin brother it's revealed that dread and rico were both cloned from the same source both trained to be judges at the same time, and Rico was permanently better than Dredd. Mm-hmm. But Rico went bad, and Dredd turned him in. Rico was then sent to prison on the moon of Titan, mm-hmm. and he returns looking for revenge. Dredd beats him. It turns out that like Rico is out of practice, whatever, and Dredd shoots him. And Dredd then lifts up Rico's body, and the character more or less says, like, you know, don't you need help? Like, you know, you're 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 hurt. Why don't you let us do it? And Dredd goes, I can make it. He ain't heavy. He's my brother, which is astounding. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is one of those. And I mean, I would say that there's almost one. I'm tempted to say that there's nothing more punk than, than, you know, very snidely taking a completely sentimental bit of schmaltz like he ain't heavy he's my brother which i love that song by the way uh well somebody has to well i mean because it's a big pile of sentimental schmaltz you just listen to it and it's it's kind of fabulous that way i'm losing my ability to love things ironically as i grow older uh and now it's just kind of like yeah i won't deny there's times where it's like that gets stuck in my head and I'm like, oh yeah, there's that kind of da, 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 da. I have nothing against schmaltz. I have nothing against sentiment. It's honestly the tune. Yeah. I don't know why. Like I find the tune just like horrible. (laughs) Yes. Well, so, and so my theory, my answer would be the reason why you use that in the seventies is I'm pretty sure that it ended up being the centerpiece of a popular film during the 70s. I'm tempted to say it was something like Brian's song, maybe, which is, you know, 
an incredibly schmaltzy tearjerker movie that was an enormous hit. I could be wrong, but I mean, you know, you have to keep in mind at that point in the 70s, there's incredibly schmaltz, the, the sh- you know, schmaltz was worn especially by some of the, the, the new auteur dudes in Hollywood uh, as kind of a protective shield to, to kind of like, you know, a little bit of the wolf in sheep's clothing. Like, no, 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 no. I'm just like the rest of you guys. But if you look at the amount of ridiculous schmaltz, like, you know, the fact that you've got something like Billy Jack, which is, you know, a Kung Fu revenge hippie exploitation movie that has the insanely memorable wanton soldier song. Like there's just a lot of schmaltz out there for life. So I really am. I'm like, I, I didn't you you posed the question right before our short little break and I it pains me that I didn't have time to run to the internet and be like okay was it in Brian's song was it like was it in a Ryan O'Neill movie of some kind like I swear to God it was used and so part of me really does feel that like but but again I feel feel that the return of Rico which really does try to set up so much backstory for Dread. Um, and I'm not sure, I I don't think that that side works, but of course it's everything else that gets put into that story. Like, you know, the fact that the judges all get exiled to Titan, the fact that Rico and Joe are clones. Yeah, exactly. The fact that clones, the fact that there is a brother and Dread wasn't the best. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Like, there is so much there that is so wonderful. Yeah. I mean, it's just jammed with hooks. And so it's kind of funny in a way that Mills Mills's big, you know, closer is just such a wet fart because everything else on it is is like you just, you know, the amount of strip mining from just these six pages, you know, it ends up it's, being it's as, astounding. Yeah, an incredibly rich vein that that people are going to come back to and keep mining from for decades. Uh, so, so, so let's jump off that for a second. Cause one of the things that's so interesting about this is this is the first year. Mm-hmm. This is, as, as we said, like everyone basically scrambling, like, what is this world? Let's try and fill it in as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Return of Rico comes, uh, just a few weeks after the Academy of law two parter, mm-hmm. um, which again is putting in this thing that is, really dramatically like world building that sticks Mm -hmm. do you know i mean like there's so much that doesn't stick and even i i felt like and maybe this is purely me and my biases showing i felt like maybe half of the stories in the first volume and the for the first year of the strip are dread versus technology gone wrong right i like there's a robot or a machine and it is it is going to fuck up and it is going to be a threat the dread has to take down mm-hmm. and i feel that honestly a lot of that has gone by the wayside mm-hmm. since then mm-hmm. it's the point where you get a recurring theme in, in dreads starting in the 90s that continues today where every now and again someone will be like well, why don't we create robot judges mm-hmm. and dread is so against it because you know robots never work out which makes sense given the fact that you know for his first year dread just fights robots all the right. time right right but also, 
makes robots look so unreliable. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like robots can only do menial tasks, mm -hmm. which feels like it's so there's so much in this first year that is like, you know, it's a robot, it's a car, it's talking, and therefore it's trouble. The very first story, it has the worst criminals don't get killed. They get put into Devil's Island, yes. which is a traffic island, and cars never stop around there, so you can't escape. Right. Again, that gets stitched because Dredd just kills people by, like, the fifth episode. Well, and, and isocubes get introduced or mentioned, like, around the 21st Prague or something right. like that, you know. Um, you know, so there's all these things that, that are put in place and then that have fallen by the wayside. Right. But round about maybe like half a year in, like mm -hmm. maybe prog 26, 27, 28, 29, like Rico is prog 30. Yeah. Um, you get the world building that sticks. Mm -hmm. You know, they've had enough of a, of, of a moment to be like, okay, wait, we can do this mm -hmm. and this is going to stick. Uh, someone has to have taught these guys how to be judges. Okay, what's that? It's called the Academy of Law. Okay, that sticks. Mm -hmm. um, why is Dredd so good? Okay, he's a clone of the first judge, and he's actually also living up to the ghost of his brother, who was better than him but turned out to be bad. Right. Okay, that's why Dredd like punishes himself so much. That's why Dredd has, like is so intent on the law. Mm -hmm. Okay, sure, that sticks. It's funny to see the, the series find its feet so quickly at a time when it still is very much a very different thing. Well, it is it is a very different thing, but I would argue that there are there's a couple of factors there that strike me as necessity because in sort of in that way of, you know, you've got you've got dread, there's you know, he doesn't really care any, about anything but the law. Therefore, he hates criminals. But of course, real early on, he says something like, "I, you know, the only thing I hate more is a bent judge. And so, you know, the idea, one of the things that I think is interesting about the, like you said, the the, the Academy of Law is, is perfectly set up. But when you get to Dredd's funeral and you've got Judge... Uh, spoilers for people judge gibson is actually been dressing up as muti the pig and running around like the book it it's very hard to say like whether it's dramatic necessity or uh you know i guess thematic intent that that a bunch of these guys are unsurprisingly in 78 a little suspicious of authority and although judge dread is straighter than straight the number of crooked and corrupt judges just in the first year is it's you know it's it's right there and that of course only continues to proceed you know as time goes on but giving dread you know so it could be personal uh preferences or it's just it it makes a lot of thematic sense, you know, that you're going to have dread sort of face, you know, his quasi evil side. The the it the the really the smart and that's probably part of why Rico really does resonate twice as hard is that idea, like you said, I never considered it for a moment, but if you do want to think of dread as a, you know a quote unquote real person this idea that he is driven potentially out of the fear 
of, you know, essentially knowing that he's bad, knowing that there's this identical version of himself that turned out bad. And you see the number of bad judges that, that bent judges that end up running through here. Again, it's, it's, there's not, there's not, there's, Dread is so Teflon-esque in a way you kind of can't like forgive me but it's a little bit like when when batman's you know always uh whinging about who killed his parents like i feel like dread and batman are unsurprisingly um very easy to draw uh um you know Lines comparisons between. Yeah. between yeah you know and part part of that is again wagner when wagner comes on and very smartly starts making the the foes more outsized almost to the point of absurdity it you know it, it again there's a comparison there with with how batman's rogues gallery really exploded into the you know these sort of bizarre grotesques but on but on top of it there is a little bit of the the idea that there is a demon that's driving this person that everyone sees as a demon um, what I think is interesting is the idea that that Bat, whereas they kind of can't shut up about it with Batman, it doesn't really get talked about, or at least it doesn't get talked about here or in the majority of the Dread stuff. Um, you you kind of don't have to do it in a way for whatever reason, but mm-hmm. to the which is good because I think that if you return to that well too often, um, it it would it would it would lose its potency uh and i do think that there's something to be said about dread and i guess british comics that that dread does not have to appeal to a sense of psychological reality to have appeal you know yeah and and i i think honestly that that dreads one of the things that's really interesting and again not necessarily good Mm-hmm. But interesting and enjoyable about this first volume is seeing really Wagner mm-hmm. uh, more than any other writer push the envelope of like who works as a an antagonist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like okay, robots, robots. Okay, I can do a story with robots, but then you get the you know the the mutants who are living in the the underworld. Yes, the Trogs. You know. Mm-hmm. You know, do they work? Do they not work? Right. You go to to Luna One, and you get like old fashioned mob, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like, does that work? Does that not work? And you see him, basically, not just try out different sort of schools of of crime story, but it feels to me like trying out different influences of crime comics. Mm-hmm. So you see Batman, you see Dick Tracy. Right. You see, like, more straightforward crime comics. You see more outlandish crime comics. Mm-hmm. Something that comes up a lot when I think about Dreads, but actually a lot in the later stories in this first volume, especially Luna 1, is Eisner's spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, especially when you get to the story about the the man who is Future Shock and it yes. turned, like it, it goes from 2099 to 2100 so they suddenly leap into the 22nd century and he essentially has a psychotic break mm-hmm. that's a, that's a spirit story mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right it, yeah. it just it's a spirit story that takes place in space and is starring judge dread but it's a spirit story it's an eisner story 
Mm-hmm. Um, but you do, you see Wagner basically go, what are the dread stories? Mm-hmm. Like what, what can I do? What works and what doesn't? And again, he's doing it on a weekly schedule and there, there is no real space or time to, to try these things out lightly. Mm-hmm. So the strip does just veer wildly in terms of like, Oh, it's this, it's this, no, it's this, no, it's this, maybe it's this, maybe it's this. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of subject, in terms of tone, in terms of everything. Right. And it's to look at from today's perspective, to look at from knowing, A, Dread survives as a character, B, Dread does congeal. And I would say really quickly, I'd say by the time we get to maybe the start of Volume 3, mm-hmm. you pretty much know what Dread is. And then by the time you get to like Volume 5, you're in the golden era of Dread already, mm-hmm. which is amazing. Five years in, mm-hmm. and you're, you're, you know, you're in the golden era is is really impressive. Yeah. Um, but these early days, where you have writers who don't get the character at all, replaced mm-hmm. by Wagner, who does get the character but doesn't know what the strip is, mm-hmm. doesn't know who he, who Dread deals with, doesn't know what the world is, doesn't know what Mega City One is yet, mm-hmm. and to the point where, like I said, you get the dread die story you get the dread quit story mm-hmm. you get you know the 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 origin story all these things that feel like they should wait until he's a more established character mm-hmm. and they just burn through them and then they're like okay he's going to space fine maybe mega city one isn't it maybe it works better if he's a low man in space sure we're going to do that for a while right and you just get them burning through this trying to get to what this strip is mm-hmm. and it's fascinating to watch yeah I think so too. I also think that the the two things that it, I would say is because it's as you pointed out, because it's a weekly comic, it's it it has to be discovered on the fly. There's no time to, you know, um Mills talks about the fact that you know, in his mind the perfect way to make a good strip is you literally have to give the creators anywhere from 1 to 3 months to really build the idea out. And what I think is fascinating, I don't remember I don't remember if if Dread got shorted in that regard or not. Um but I'm fascinated by even then it still doesn't it still doesn't quite click, but the other thing that I think is uh for me deeply enjoyable is because they are so busy trying to figure out ways to throw something interesting on the page like there's it's like okay again because you don't really have a lot of like what's dread trying to accomplish all he's trying to do is you know uphold the law so there's a little bit more room for here's the crazy concept of the week like uh one of my other done in ones that i think is not actually great but i love the idea is the computel you know where it's like a hotel that's a big a big robot and of course dread's like i don't like it and of course sure enough it turns crazy and starts killing everyone inside it's i mean you know it's 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 basically a jg ballard novel like shrunk down to four pages and stripped out of anything more or less objectionable um and there and then it's gone and then you're on to the next thing and if you're lucky the next thing has enough going on in it like i'm sure that elvis the killer car part of me is like it 
you know, it's like it's a fun car to draw. And eventually he's going to turn all the other cars evil. And so not only is it inherently satisfying to see cars eating people, you know, but it's kind of visually dynamic enough that you can kind of feel them being like, yeah, let's let's just drag this on for another arc or two. You know, like, let's let's not strangle this particular goose. Um, but as soon as it's done, it's like, OK, we you know, it's like they tear through another three or four ideas like the the um, the oxygen board, which is Brian Boland. So it looks beautiful. It looks way more modern than the <clears throat> than a lot of the other stories in this first volume uh and it, it and yet it's just a again it's a it's kind of a great idea that's done and over in like what five or six pages you know yeah um but 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 there is like there's so much of that there's so much of uh wonderful high concepts that just are done very quickly yeah I, and some of them like the oxygen board one works mm-hmm. it 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 does the kick in the tail is a suitable payoff. Yeah. You yeah, know? I think so. And when that happens, I mean, these, even this early, these stories sing mm-hmm. when, mm-hmm. when the payoff works. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, there really is this, this wonderful energy and dynamism, as you said, but simplicity of purpose. Right. Because it is, it is. I mean, there is a formula. You've got five pages. Page mm-hmm. one is set up. Page five is payoff. The three pages in between is development, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 you, there's no time to fuck around. Yeah, and when it works, it's this amazing engine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you could you could almost look at because again, the oxygen board story is I think six pages. You can more or less cut it into two parts. There's the first story part where the the guys rob, you know, basically gas the entire city so that they can rob it and you just start seeing all the horrible shit that happens from that like the whole thing with the moving sidewalks where all the bodies are piling up and crushing one another that's genuinely horrifying you know and then the second part of the story where the guys are like we got away with the perfect crime oh wait we didn't pay the oxygen board like you were talking about eisner's the spirit that's basically an ec story right there you know, yeah, exactly. But a very British twist on it and a sci-fi satire on top of it. So, you know, and like you said, you get someone like Boland in there and 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 it just it's it's stunning how accomplished it is and, and how classic it feels like that. It's 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 a pretty timeless little story. You know, we've talked a lot about story to mm-hmm. this point. Uh, we talked a lot about writing and talked a lot about like the world building. Right. We haven't talked enough about the art. Yes. And I mean, this book has Mike McMahon. It's got Ian Gibson. It's got Carlos Esquera. It's got Boland, like really early Boland work. Boland work before he's Boland, which is, is really fascinating to see mm-hmm. where he's got the finish, but he's not quite got the structure yet. Yes. And it, I like it's, it's, genuinely amazing you've got ron turner who is completely unsung and it, like his work in the robot stories are, is is great is he the did he draw that amazing first part where it yes. looks like kirby meets paul Rabosh yep. or something yep. oh my yep. god i adored yep. that it's i mean you really have visually this book is stunning mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the mcmahon work in particular i think 
mm-hmm. more than anyone else, the McMahon work is just like should be studied. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it there's everything is right with McMahon's work here. Yeah. He he gets a wonderful his character acting is wonderful. His as we were talking about before, the like the layouts mm-hmm. are genuinely like wacky at times. Yeah. Um, but you know his it. Just his designs are amazing. His his spotting of blacks is uncanny. Mm. Like McMahon work is is so amazingly good. But you know you do you've Bolland, you've got Turner who more people should be paying attention to Turner. Turner stuff is really just great yeah. here. Yeah, and he's completely unsung. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book looks great. Yeah, like the book looks amazing. And again. Like you said about the Poland stuff, like feels more contemporary than like being four decades old. Yeah. Like compare the work here with the work that was being done in American comics in the seventies. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing that's rough, as you know. Seventies Marvel comics is really my jam, but uh, b- but for me, there is sort of a. I spent some time thinking about it because, like I said, there's points here where every once in a while. I can see what I think of as a Steranko influence or kind of a post Steranko influence because you had dudes like, you know, Rich Buckler or Paul Galassi, um, who basically go on just by being around turning out, you know, more pages of Steranko style stuff than Steranko did in a way. Um and I almost feel like a lot of that ends up being a stronger and better influence on the dread stuff. I, I think, I, you know, I'm I'm actually of two minds about that because uh, one of the things I I associate with that work is a kind of um, a lot of of plane of movement uh, and, and time across the page, and I feel like. Uh, one of the things that just knocks me out about these pages is just how design rich they are. Like I said, everything is so to get so much material on the page and not have it feel cramped is just such a stunning accomplishment. I think for a lot of these artists, um, I really am. I'm in, I'm in awe of the work to me, even when it doesn't, really crank down to because there are guys i don't know why but like for example uh ian gibson's work just kind of left me cold uh it's it's very uh it's again like boland isn't quite boland yet ian gibson isn't quite ian gibson yet Mm -hmm. it's it's overly busy compared with his later work um it it feels uh, overly rendered yeah, and, and to be honest, a lot of the Boland work in this book feels overly rendered to me as well. Well, but it's, yeah, but right. fascinatingly so. We'll see, and I think that's it. One of the things about Boland is is that he's going to give you a level of over rendering where you're just, you know what I mean? It's like it's it's like being drowned in chocolate syrup. You're like, okay, if this is the way I got to go, I you know, I okay. But Gibson, you're right. Gibson's stuff is overly busy. It feels like he is struggling with the scope of what's on the page much more. And so consequently, I I feel like he just kind of doesn't have as much of the focus. I also think that in some ways 
some of the Gibson pages are, uh, he, he is in a way more conventional, I think, in a lot of his story layouts. There's a lot more, although I, I guess I should look through this. I, I was going to say, I'm not sure that's actually true. Mm. Um, you get to some of the Lun- Lunar One stuff, like the Elvis uh, car story. Right is Gibson. Oh yeah, that's and, true. And that's that's definitely not like there's some really great layout stuff there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but again, the earlier work by him mm-hmm. suffers from being too busy, and the layouts are a bit more conventional. Right. I feel yeah. like Gibson definitely grows as an artist that the longer his 2080 career goes on. Yeah, I think I think that make actually makes a lot of sense, and I do think I do think you're right. The more that he cuts away from the traditional um panel layouts usually the better it serves him but i do think that un, un, unlike some of the other 2000 ad guys who more or less are quick to jump outside the box first and then it, i feel like gibson when he's under the gun is probably more likely to fall back on almost something like a traditional grid you know, or maybe not. I, I, I just know that, again, his stuff didn't didn't ring for me, despite the fact that, that when you say that and I look at some of it, there's absolutely stuff that I think is is lovely. And I do like sort of the the mayhem of the Elvis, the killer car story, uh, because it seems so garish and over the top in a way that I don't really think of as Gibson, you know, so. Yeah. It's a good point. No, the the art in this really is overall. It's just it's just astounding. Um, so, Graham, uh, do you think that it's time where we pick where we should pick our 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 fave stories? I don't necessarily know if um, I'm sure this will change for me in the future, but I don't necessarily have a strong need to 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 pick it out pick pick mine apart and argue about well, it. Well, I'm I'm curious what your favorite stories are. In this, or what your favorite story is, I, I've told you before that, like, I I am a big fan of of one of the early Dunham ones, mm-hmm. um, and it's the John Nobody story. Oh yeah, the Dream Palace story. Uh-huh. Uh huh. If kind of because I maybe the first place where it feels like it is what I think of as the the like platonic ideal of a Judge Dredd story mm-hmm. really falls into place. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the nobody citizen. I mean, literally, he's called John Nobody. Yes. Um, who has delusions of grandeur and, you know, is honestly, like, dispatched very quickly mm-hmm. by Dredd. But there's a, a it, I mean, it's a, it's a five-page story. He dreams of essentially, like, destruction and torturing uh, judges. Mm-hmm. And then proceeds to carry out his dreams. Uh, he dreams about it in the Dream Palace, which is a, a place where people go to dream in 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 a hypercharged state. They get plugged into dream machines mm-hmm. where, where where they have these dreams. And Dread is called in by the the Dream Palace because they're like, "Oh, we've been monitoring dreams, and this guy is, is going to be dangerous." There's something about the the that he is a nobody who has these delusions of grandeur mm-hmm. that. Ultimately, he's so easily dispatched by Dredd that the delusions of grandeur almost become ironic. Right. 
you know what I mean? Like, he was so incredibly wrong. Like, he, he is not a threat at all. The Dread really dispatches them very quickly. But the middle section of the story, the, the, you know, if I said that, you know, five pages and page one is set up, page four, page five is, is climax and the three pages in between are, are development. Mm-hmm. The development has nothing to do with the threat. Mm-hmm. The development is all dread is like going into the stream palace and being like, this is fucking weird. Look, they're, they're, they even plug your pets in. That's wacky. <laughs> yes. And, and then he gets plugged in to, to relive someone else's dream. And it's like, it's horrific. No, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. There's something wonderful about that. It seems hyper-inventive for this five-page story. Hyper-focused and just complete in and of itself is this five-page unit of storytelling mm-hmm. that I just love. I love that story so much. And again, you've got this amazing McMahon art. Right. Okay. You want me to blow your mind, Graham? Because yep. I think, and I wouldn't have tweaked to this if you hadn't said it earlier, Part of the reason why you love this story is it is the exact inverse of Will Eisner's spirit story, Gerald Schnabel, The Man Who Can Fly. Oh, yeah. No, exactly. Where you have the the person who doesn't have delusions of grandeur but should have. Right. Like the the, the person whose secret fantasy turns out to be 100% true even though no one else notices. Right. And so – at the end, uh, just as you have uh, Schnabel more or less killed, like in kind of a, a moment of sheer irony by, you know, crossing paths with Dread. Uh, oh, by, with, with, no. Uh, sorry, Schnabel. sorry. With the yeah. spirit in <laughs> Schnabel, yes. It's like, wow. <laughs> that is an art project. Let me tell you. Just take all those spirit stories and rewrite them with like Dread in them. There you go. It, it's, it's a nightmare unto itself. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's an Eisner story. It's funny because that done in one, one of the things I think is interesting is a lot of the five page stories, um, there can be a twist of some kind, you know, cause like you said, with the five, with the five pagers, you can do the development, but there's enough pages to kind of throw a curve in. And I think the curve here is very much like dread doesn't really solve the crime. He's more or less like a woman working at the dream palace, like um, flags him down and he's completely suspicious about her and the whole palace. But of course she, she tweaks him to the truth. Um, and well, but also like he doesn't actually do anything until like later until someone actually attacks the parade yes. as well. Like mm-hmm. he, he doesn't, he literally is nothing other than this brute force. Yes. Yeah. 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 No, very much. And so, so there's a lot of, we're exploring the world and it it's funny even even <clears throat> i think because nobody is such a, a nobody um it's it's kind of funny it's like huh that's not that would have been necessarily my pick for the best done in one although i think you know back when i was like oh god you know if there's only going to be one maybe it should be the, you know we should talk about the return of rico but uh, but I do love, as I mentioned, and it's it's a shame I didn't flag this the page, so I've got to browse about the uh, the done in one that starts with like Billy Jones being afraid of dread and dread like breaking through and being like, "Where's Billy Jones?" I guess it comes around page one seventy seven, and and the first page is them popping the kid's head off, and it he yes. turns out to be a robot 
So it ends up being a case of industrial espionage where uh, the real children have been kidnapped and replaced with robot spies to spy on their parents and, and turn in the, the executives. And uh, uh, I feel like that's just got a, you know, it's it's a four pager. So it doesn't really end up having time to do a twist like that first page. is like he twists off the head. You know, he hunts down the bad guys. You get to see the bad guys and then everyone more or less gets, you know, shot up. Um, but uh, the the only thing that I end up actually, you know, digging is that the the opening and the closing are just, you know, sublime. But I say that and right after that, you've got the amazing Jack Kirby meets Dread, you know, Don Uggy Ablino and his henchmen, Fast Eek and Joe Bananas, the ape gang, uh, in which a story of gang warfare between competing bands of intelligent gangster apes, you know, gets gets uh, just resolved in like four or five pages. Interestingly enough, uh, for people who are interested, I want to say that Al Ewing brings back Don Uggy uh, Apino in... I want to say it's Judge Dredd versus Mars Attacks, I think. So um, I, I am utterly not surprised. But at the same time, you know, there are apes elsewhere. In, yes. In Dredd's, in current day Dredd stories as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There is, um, Arthur Wyatt has a, a whole, and I can't remember his name for the life of me, and it's going to really irritate me. He has a whole Judge ape that he oh uses my God. in magazine stories. Oh, my God. Want I want? Um, oh, it's it's wonderful. It, it's 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 he's done uh, a handful of them, and they're wonderful because he's not officially a judge. Like he's essentially a judge wannabe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's wonderful, wonderful stuff. That's great. Uh, and then I think you know the the art just just because everything snaps into place. I out of all the big extended multi-part progs war of the robots just seems kind of perfect for me like it's it's stunning to robots, read this long what's that yes yeah war mm-hmm. of the robots is uh, first of all the first extended storyline in mm-hmm. dread mm-hmm. Uh, it's wagner's first scripting on mm-hmm. the series it is honestly where things start really where it's it's recognizable as dread mm-hmm. honestly mm-hmm. as opposed to like generic future lawman mm-hmm um and as a, as a as an extended sequence there's so much there in every single episode you get things like the heavy metal kids yes who, who for my money the heavy metal kids actually bring in the dread humor as i know it for the first time Absolutely. you know where they're like smash crash bash mash come and get it human trash mm-hmm. like there's something about that 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 is knowing and funny and like off kilter and honestly slightly creepy. Yes, that that works really well. Like you said, Kevin O'Neill clearly designed some of the robots, mm-hmm. and they look amazing. Mm-hmm. Like the the heavy metal kit design is wonderful. It's yeah. really great. Um, Comic Kenneth is such a good threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get the wonderful dread quit story in there. Yes, uh, yeah. you know there, there's there's a lot. It's it's really a really 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 fun story extended storyline mm-hmm. and it, it really is where dread starts feeling like dread 
Well, the thing that I think is interesting is is that it comes relatively early on, and I believe in Thrill Power Overload, uh, you know, O'Neill talks about just what a ridiculous pain in the ass it was, basically, that I sort of wonder if they decided, like, kind of like it was too hard to do because it's, it's relatively early on. It's much larger than most of the other stuff you see after that. Really, I feel like until Cursed Earth are two or three parts. Even even the Luna City stuff with C.W. Mooney, which is arguably a continued thing, is broken into nice little bite-sized pieces, you know, where it's like, yeah. oh, somebody tried to kill me. Who's killing me? Who's trying to kill me? You know, next episode, someone different tries to kill Dread in a different way, you know, and you don't have to worry about the continuity of like, oh, here's one crazy motherfucker. And I think, you know, uh, we'll get into this uh, a lot more in the next episode. But when you get to something like Cursed Earth, there's a... There's just if there seems to be, if nothing else, a kind of resignation of like an awareness that it really works for the character and probably for the readers, even though it's pure hell on the actual creators and the editorial team, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, just the um, just trying to crank out a year's worth of material every week is painful as hell um well i mean you look at the the credits for this book mm-hmm. and there are one two three four five six seven eight nine credited writers right and bear in mind wagner writes more than half of this book himself yes and you have one two three four five six seven eight nine artists again mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sorry eight artists i i can't count eight artists yeah um and again mcmahon draws the majority of this book mm-hmm but it's there are so many people involved in just getting these stories done. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And and O'Neill and Mills both talk in Thrill Power Overload about having to, you know, Mills is rewriting parts of the stories and O'Neill is literally having to do touch up on the page and redrawing stuff and just, you know, there's people that don't necessarily work out you know, which is a shame because like there's the one European artist that draws the first part of the uh, of the Mega City 5000 race that I just I just love, you know, such a, a Euro experience. But that first page is oh, oh Bill Ward. Uh, is it Mill Ward? Is, no, is that... Yeah, Bill Ward. Yeah. Bill, oh, yeah. Bill Ward. Yeah. Bill Ward's work on that first part, which um, is his only work for 2018. Yeah. He's American. Oh, that would make sense. Bill Ward, like he ended up doing a lot he of work did, for did. like Warren magazines and stuff, right? Yes. That's that's why he yes. looks familiar. He's I recognize from, him from Creepy. Age, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Wow. Wait a minute. Like you think it's the dude who was born in 1919? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's my. who it is. Oh, my God. You're totally right. He drew part, the four-page part one of a Judge Dredd story. Holy shit. Wow. When he wasn't drawing erotic stories for things like Jugs and Leg Show. Well, shows you what we know. Anyway, I liked it. But then I think I was also kind of like, yeah, this feels really familiar to me as only someone who read like 
the first two or three fucking creepy archives could. So, huh, I'll be damned. Um, right? Yeah. That's wacky. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> the things we learn. Yeah. No, but it, it's, there is so much work involved in putting this together. Mm-hmm. And you're right. By the time you get to the Cursed Earth, you're looking at one story that lasts half a year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, But again, like multiple, multiple artists trying yes. to put it together. Yeah. But it's to the benefit of the strip. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think so too. And you see, you see, like for example, the robot story is nine is nine parts. Mm-hmm. Luna one isn't really a story, but is a, a. And to be honest, Cursed Earth isn't really a story either. Mm. Cursed Earth is, is as much of a sort of shaggy dog story as, as Luna one is, and mm. to get Dread out of right. of Mega City one. Yeah. Um, but in both cases, it it's. You know, we're we're trying to do something different. We're trying to shake up the status quo. We're trying to do an extended something. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're they're kind of edging towards it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. twice first year, and then they go full on into in in their second year. And you know, at that point, it becomes part of the the DNA of dread. Yeah, that, that every now and again you'll have this massive story. Yes, which. Honestly, I think it's really important to the the, the dynamic of Dread as a, as a strip. Hugely One of the things so. that, it's, yeah. that it's lacking in this first volume mm-hmm. is that extended narrative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you get it for a bit and it feels great. And then it then it's gone and you have just little bits and pieces and, and dribs and drabs. And for whatever reason, uh, the, the, I think probably because... The, Everything that is going on in the Dread stories in terms of setting and whatever plot hooks and, of course, the page limitation, um, the mega, you know, the multi-prog story really just helps blow the sense of scope in the sense of the world forward, you know, in a, in a way that does help ultimately ends up, I think, that's part of what makes Dread unique. Because you're absolutely right. Like, weird. There is a weird way, and it's it, that dread is practically like a, a strange version of the spirit, where he he stays the same, and it's the world around him and the situations around him that are changing and or driving um, the story engine. I guess you know. Uh, but every once in a while, you really need to 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 blow that up i guess more uh, you know not in the sense of explode it but in the sense of making everything bigger just so the stakes can feel a little bit higher or a little bit the world ends up feeling like more of a a place and not a skit i have a question jeff Mm -hmm. for people who are not familiar with judge red would you recommend they started with this volume well, I I don't know. I would say y- yes with a bunch of caveats. And that those caveats really do have to be like uh do, like kind of are you a process junkie? Are you an art junkie? Are you the sort of person that reads old comics for their goofiness? You know what I mean? Like if you're the sort of person that buys or bought like say um DC's black and white showcase reprints like 
the Bob Haney stuff or, or even um, something a little more uh, modular like the, the war reprint comics or the horror comics, I would say definitely pick this stuff up because this stuff is the comic books where the art and the invention and the speed are the stars, you know, but mm -hmm. if you're looking at it from uh no, I want to, I want to, I'm interested in comics characters or I'm interested in a comics world, you know, I think, I think arguably you could say that these are skippable, you know, I, I don't think I have a very strong sense of that. Cause like I said, I feel like I got to, uh, five but i would say that like if you if you were worried or you had money or whatever i kind of suspect that you could probably start with volume two and because you get the cursed earth um you get a bigger you get something that you can more easily mistake for a traditional comic book story and then you kind of get maneuvered down these little four page back roads and hopefully end up really appreciating the the what you find there you know appreciating mm -hmm. them as your own things but i do think that if you're not used to coming to the comics with a certain sense of inherent built-in distance i think it, i think this could be kind of a tough sell you know i i'm reminded why well, I, I asked the question partially because when we said we we're going to do a drug uh, a number of people said essentially, like I, I've always wondered about dread, but I've never known where to start. Right. And the the theory I've heard put forward from Douglas Wolk, who did the Dread Reckoning blog, which I highly recommend. Mm -hmm. By the way, it's it's uh, Douglas and a, a number of guests reading through Dread collections that were out at the time, and this is about five years ago he did it, so it, it's slightly outdated now. Mm -hmm. um, but his theory was you start with volume five. Mm-hmm. Volume 5 has the Apocalypse War, which is arguably the best of the early mega epics. Mm -hmm. um, it has a bunch of things in it that feel like, you know... First of all, the series had found its footing. Uh, it is Wagner and Grant by that point. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it's got the Apocalypse War, which is a rare in that it is one artist for the entire 26 episodes. Mm. Wow. Um you know, it, and so it, it feels a much more coherent experience, mm -hmm. especially for people coming into to this school of comics, if you will, mm -hmm. like the five-page chapters. Mm -hmm. um, and so, as someone who's not that familiar with Dread, I wanted to ask you basically, like, you know, do you think that it's it this is worthwhile? That there's something to this? Right. I I definitely think so, but I'm also well aware that I don't think that I would have had patience for this um if I was 10 years younger and definitely 20 years younger. I'd be kind of like, "Eh, yeah, I kind of get it, but it's not for me." The the older that I get, the more that I read for the the disjunction in comics sure you know sure. and well, well one of the things that this reminds me of is mm -hmm. when we were doing bags building mm -hmm. this reminds me of the early fantastic four books right right you know because there, there's a period where like lee and kirby are, are clearly lee and kirby but they're early lee and kirby and they're not doing the fantastic four as we know them yeah and the books are interesting but they're curios mm -hmm. you know like i wouldn't say to someone going where do i start with with uh 
Fantastic Four, I wouldn't be like, oh, start with issue one. Right. Yeah. Because you don't. You go back to issue one once you know what the book is. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think I feel the same about Dread. Mm-hmm. You go back to volume one of this once you've read, like, you know, at least volume like four or five. Mm. Well, we'll see. I mean, I, I would like to I would like to explore more for volume two uh before before i weigh in with it but yeah i would i would say that volume one is definitely kind of dicey uh unless you like reading for a certain type like there's a lot of people who of course love the it once you get into it like the first 20 issues of fantastic four are kind of glorious for what you see in there that's not fully refined sure yeah so and I think the same is the same is very much true here. Yes, absolutely. If you like seeing a lot of stuff that's with potential, but my theory, and we'll see if it develops in later parts, is that Wagner, that the secret ingredient of, for Wagner to making Dread work is the citizens of Mega City One, and you don't really have that here in the same way, like is is what's sort of crucial to making dread work um and and we'll see how that that plays out you know um so for me it's still kind of there's still there's so much that's here and there's a lot of potential but there's at least one piece missing if not two or three that keep it from being a thing that that fully feels like it's you know like it's firing on 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 all cylinders even on its own terms, you know, I think that there's still a lot of, uh, depending on the reader, there's still a lot of, um, you, you've got to meet the material on its own footing, I think, mm-hmm. you know? Well, I, I think it's at no point, even before Wagner arrives, I think it's dread not filled with potential. Oh yeah. But I think if you look at Dread in context of the other early 2080 strips, you know, your Mac one, mm-hmm. even your Dan Dare, you know, your mm-hmm. invasions, there's not anything that immediately makes it stand out as like, oh, this is the one that's going to be the hit. Yeah. This is the one that's going to be the breakaway right. until Wagner shows up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. then what are you there? Yes. Yeah. Did I? Oh, sorry. I, I just got a, I just got a poor connection alert oh, okay. all of a sudden. Oh, okay. Uh, but then what happens for me is that you get um you get Wagner essentially go, Oh, he's not a good guy. And that is that is the change. That mm-hmm. is the shift. I, I think the first stage one is um Dread is not a good guy is the first stage. I could be wrong on this, but based on some of the stuff that I remember reading from later case files, the second stage is that Mega City One needs dread, and not really because of sort of sort of the same way that I feel like The Simpsons kicks into a higher gear once they realize that the entire Spring City of Springfield are idiots. You know, it helps. Yeah. What's what's super important to Mega City One is the fact that the majority of the citizens every once in a while you've got someone who's heartbreakingly lucid but the ridiculous amounts of poor impulse control uh on the parts of the citizens of mega city one i feel like you don't see that as much 
in this first volume. It's kind of hinted at a little bit in that one uh, game show uh, prog that's a four which, which is is also was my second choice for a favorite strip. Yeah, because again, it feels like classic dread. Yep, it feels like an early incarnation of it. But it, you're right; it feels like the everyone in Mega City One is kind of stupid. Yes, yeah. Essentially, Dread's biggest nemesis it, are the people of Mega City One because they're they're morons. They think jumping off of buildings and super big you know rubber balls is good idea that appearing on game shows where they can be cut in half seems like fun like you know they're 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 slaves to their worst impulses and and because dread is a man who follows through on none of his impulses other than the enforcement of the law like that becomes that sort of adversarial engine that he needs you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah, the, 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 yeah. The tension there is essentially it is one hyper competent man versus a city of incompetence. Right, and and I think and I think in a way, although it inverts it, that is that's kind of an important engine for a book that is satirical, but also has a fascist at, at the core. Is kind of that idea of, but all these people are idiots what are you you know what's the solution what what are you doing yeah like how can you like if democracy is truly a farce like what are you going to do and so there's this kind of um you know in our real lives what is an uneasy relationship becomes at least in the early days of dread before it changes up this strangely symbiotic relationship of you know dread needs you know the people need dread and dread really needs the people but as i think as the satire goes on and as wagner and grant really sharpen their knives that symbiosis becomes a lot more challenging for both sides you know Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. it it is my working theory we'll see how well that holds up as we go along right yeah, one of the things that is particularly interesting to me is I think your working theory is very sound. Mm-hmm. I think what makes Dread viable to this day mm-hmm. is that there comes a point up mm-hmm. where Wagner decides that's not enough anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where it gets really amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there comes a point where I think I think what has made the strip last to to today, mm-hmm. and and still be, the, I mean, to my money, it it really is the the, the shining example of British comic making. Mm-hmm. I, I I think there is nothing that compares with Dread. But what makes the thing is uh, Dread changes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dread can do a long game as a strip because Dread can change, and Dread does change as a character. Right. Well, I but I also feel, and I could be wrong, that what we see in here, like I said, that sort of prepackaged kind of postmodern quality to dread that that everything is so elastic in here that you have the freedom for not only for dread to change, but then for dread to then stay to go dormant. You know what I mean? Like you can, you don't, you don't 
Dread doesn't have to be a shark that is constantly moving forward as a character. The expectations are at a certain point built in that you're going to have long swaths of, you know, done in ones or multi-part stories where it's like dread versus like, I don't know, werewolves who are trying to toilet train themselves or something, you know? Oh, just just, wait, just wait for the, you know that there is the dread werewolf stories, right? Yes. I I do remember. Yeah. But (laughs) I was like, Oh my God, Jeff. So close. So close. Yeah. (laughs) I got very excited for a second. (laughs) I actually had forgotten. I thought I was pulling that out of my butt. But um... I will say that in answer to my own question, I wouldn't really recommend that anyone starts Dread with Volume One. Okay, I think th- I think there's a lot in Volume One that I adore. Yeah, but I think that it is from a weird historical perspective, mm-hmm. and I think that if I was looking to convince someone that Dread is is like fun and valid and worth reading, mm-hmm. I would tell them to wait for a later volume. Mm, interesting. So, and, and I think, I really think I would go for like three or four, to be honest. Right. I, if only because, because I like two a lot, but I think that two has so much of the Pat Mills dread mm, mm-hmm. that I'm like, ah, no, I think I'd wait for three. Yeah, I can see that. Um, But anyway, moving on. Mm-hmm. This is the point where I will say that there will be show notes for this episode up on Monday at waitwhatpodcast.com. And I will also tell you that if you cannot wait for that, then we have all manner of social media. We are at uh, instagram.com forward slash waitwhatpod. We are at waitwhatpods.tumblr.com. And we are on Twitter at waitwhatpodcast. Jeff Lester has a Twitter solo at lazybastid at L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D. And I have a Twitter solo at Graham M at (laughs) G-R-A-E-M-E-M. Plus, this podcast exists purely through the kindness of people at our Patreon. Jeff, please mention our Patreon. Give the URL and tell everyone what it's all about. Oh, man. Give the URL. You want me to say, like, go to patreon.com slash wait, what podcast? Is that, I is do. that what it is? That's exactly what I want. Oh, my God. Uh, we are really grateful for all of our listeners. Um, you know, I don't think that I could have ever seen myself doing something as absolutely uh outside of my comfort zone as saying oh yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna read 340 pages of judge dread and then and then feel like i can give people my opinions on it if nothing else i just figured i would be a good way to for graham to school us all but nonetheless um i'm incredibly grateful to uh, the fact that people listen to us here and on our 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 mothership podcast wait what uh talk about comics uh more or less three month three weeks out of the month uh and i'm really grateful to the people we're both really grateful to the people at patreon for um supporting us with a little bit of uh mega city one creds uh, to to keep us keep us going through you know um, damn it it's I'm totally like to be able to feed my addiction to and I don't know probably 2000 AD comics there is a, a very cutesy <laughs> four page story here where there's comic book smugglers and people selling old which, comics which yeah. is like the anti smoking story another 
uh, story that makes me go, oh, this is when they were like, we don't know what this is. Is this a kid's comic? Yeah, that that story is in particular like a kid's, a very smug kid's comic, but also kind of goofy. Uh, we're great. For- it's totally fun. But yeah. It's, it's also like, it's, it's, it's ridiculous looked at from the viewpoint of today. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I would really like to give a shout out in particular to Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, uh, as well as all our Patreon supporters. We're especially grateful for her continuing support of this podcast. Uh, Also, I should say this is our first episode of Drock. And if you uh, just like the volume we just read we're a little bit of a a work in progress uh 340 pages is a lot of material to cover and we can't do it all in one podcast that being said if you think that we spent too much time skirting around hypnoses if you feel that there's a better way that you want to hear us uh tackle it like jump over to wait what podcast and throw it in the comments or drop us an email uh, at wait what podcast at gmail.com and let us know. I mean, you know, obviously we're not going to be able to recap every story, but maybe you want us to open up more with the recaps before we get into the vague hand wavy abstraction <laughs> or what one of the things that I think we will do in future is especially when there's the mega epics, mm-hmm. I think it would behoove us to discuss the shape of the mega epics more. Agreed. Agreed. I mean, fortunately there really was the one, but Despite us talking about how great War of the Robots was, we didn't necessarily talk that much about it. I think that, um, like you said, talking about the Cursed Earth coming up in Volume 2, I think will probably give us a lot of um, insight into how the mega epics are shaped. um, Because I do feel that uh, even in the War of the Robots, there was a rise and fall to the story where it's like, the story's wrapped up. Oh, no, wait, the bad guy got away again. That is very um, capricious in a way that, that that certainly it probably tightens up in later mega epics. But certainly, as you pointed out, in Cursed Earth, there's a little bit of the shaggy dog element of it of like, oh, we're doing this thing. And sometimes that thing is only going to be referred to in one panel um, and then we're going to get on to whatever crazy ass idea we wanted to have, you know, uh, our artist draw. So, um, yeah, but but yeah, let us know. Graham is apparently weighed in with his comments because he didn't feel like writing a letter to wait what podcast at gmail dot com. And I guess that's, you know, that's fine. That's fine. I, I, I'm just going to write to your personal email, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> I have it. Why would I write to the email that I also get? <laughs> Because that's the way it's done, Graham. You're supposed to color inside the lines. But okay, no, no, no. I'm a lawbreaker. (laughs) Send me to the cubes. Drog. Oh, I do want to say this, and I might be wrong. If you are reading it digitally, or I presume not even, uh, not digitally, uh, according to my PDF, um, page 71 is where Drog appears for the first time. Ooh, nice. Yeah. That's great. I also had a weird situation where, um, just like just like in the Baxter Building, I had have multiple copies of the case files, uh, and the PDF worked well for me in Goodreader. Except 
the double page spreads were off. Um, so I would go and read it in the 2000 AD app where I purchased the first five or six uh, case files in like a drunken Christmas half off price sale spree a few years back. But weirdly, I could only read it for about 30 or 40 pages at a time. And then the app would just refuse to load pages. It would just be like green blurs of digital haze. So honestly, the story is two things that you're going to be mad at Jeff for saying that about their app. <laughs> uh, but for people who are curious in all seriousness, uh, you're, if you're wondering how to read this stuff and you are basically outside of the UK, um, 2000E's website and 2000E's app are actually really good. And if you go to the website, you can download things as a PDF or a That's CBR. Right. Yep. And PDF, uh, CBR, and the, so, use your readers there to read those. They're also on the Kindle store, at least in the Amazon US site, so that you can read them. Weirdly, not in Comixology, still only in the Kindle app, uh, which sort of works. Again, kind of a bummer when double page spreads come along. But the prices, I would I. You, Jeff, you can argue or not. I would say the prices are actually really good digitally. I you're, think so too. You're essentially paying, you're essentially paying ten dollars for the case first case files, yeah. which is like we said, like three hundred and forty pages of content. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. And until next time, you're under arrest, Drock. <laughs>